Hello, Health Equity Squad. I hope you've been well. Welcome to Practicing Health Equity. I'm your host and guide, Matt Kastner. In this season of Practicing Health Equity, we are exploring the question, why should we care about health equity? A journey I am calling the headwaters. The headwaters are the land where a river starts, and this question is where this podcast starts. So with that, let's begin. Today we start exploring the first branch of the headwaters with utilitarianism. We are starting with utilitarianism because it is the oldest ethical framework that still, to my eye, appears to be in circulation, at least in the public health world. While this is the first episode about a philosophy, you will hear in coming episodes that they all seem to argue against utilitarianism in some way. And while I've said we want to stay away from the food fight aspect of philosophical discourse, we'll touch on it a bit here, particularly in meeting Dr. Michael Quinn, who began his career as a devotee of John Rawls. We'll learn more about Rawls in a couple weeks, but his life work was to provide a rational alternative to utilitarianism. Before we talk to Chris and Michael, let's fire up the old oversimplicator, which still smells a bit like hot dogs. If this is your first episode with us, the oversimplicator is a very real, not fake machine that uses only the finest cutting-edge vacuum tube technology. Using only three dials, the oversimplicator creates a parallel dimension based solely on the philosophy we are considering. So this week, we're turning the do knob to maximize, what to welfare, and who to group. So we are maximizing welfare at the group level. Let's take a quick look in the oversimplicator, and then we'll talk with two of the world's leading scholars on Jeremy Bentham, widely acknowledged as the founder of utilitarianism. And here we go. Beep, boop, beep, beep, boop, beep, ding. It looks like we're catching a television signal from this reality. Welcome to the evening news. My name is Flint Stumpskin. Following a wave of national demonstrations and record levels of national happiness, President Peter Singer has agreed to run for an eighth term as president. Through a statement, he said, I am only doing this because it will increase the net happiness of the population, though I personally would rather retire and do Sudokus. What a guy. We all love him. For our next story, we turn to tech correspondent Franny Farbuckle. Yes, that's right, Flint. The iHeaton 13 is hitting shelves next Tuesday. It uses brand new happiness detection technology to precisely measure how happy everyone is in five-second intervals. The data will be publicly available to anyone with a computer. The ACLU has issued a scathing statement. The ACLU? Yes, the Americans completely love Utilitarianism Foundation. They are livid that it has taken this long to develop the iHeaton 13. Back to you, Flint. That's great, Franny. Think of how useful all that data will be. And back to our reality. We're going to take a quick break and then meet two of the world's leading scholars on Jeremy Bentham, widely acknowledged to be the founder of utilitarianism. And we're back. Hi, Michael. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is uh, Michael Quinn. Um... I'm currently um, researching at the Catholic University of Lille. Um, before that, uh, I worked for nearly 20 years at the Bentham Project at University College London, editing Bentham's writings on the poor laws and political economy and sexual morality. I'm wondering if you could tell us how you got here or how you ended up as a utilitarian. For me, it was an accident. My PhD was, was, in, was in contemporary political philosophy, beginning really with Rawls. And so it was about equality. Uh, so I'm fascinated by the idea of the Equalities in Health podcast. 
and uh, utilitarianism and Bentham get one mention in my PhD. And that was as a favor to my doctoral supervisor who spent half his time working at the Bentham project. <laughs> um, and then the Bentham project applied for and got some money to edit Bentham's writings on the poor laws. My supervisor, who by then was the director of the Bentham project, was left with three years money and nobody to do the work. So at that stage, I was working in a single homeless housing association and he rang me up and said, do you fancy editing Bentham? And given the fact that for the first time in my professional career, I was approaching professional burnout, I said, yeah, that's a, that'll do me at the moment. So I started studying Bentham just by um, happenstance. And 30 years later, uh, I'm glad I did. <laughs> Yeah, that seems like that might have been a bit of a transition from sort of following the thinking of Rawls to utilitarianism. Was that for you a big shift or what was that bridge? Um, it, it, it seems like a big shift until you you appreciate that Rawls, like his, his contemporary uh, Ronald Dawkins, assumes that utilitarianism is, is the default ethical position, partly because it's intuitively obvious. Um, um, is welfare important? Yes. So what, what is the basic moral principle? Maximize welfare. Um, have, have as much of it as you can. And, and Rawls' entire intellectual career is about developing a systematic alternative to utilitarianism on the basis that utilitarianism cannot give justice. It treats social preference as completely on all fours with individual preference. And therefore, it treats people unfairly, because if I can maximize uh, overall satisfaction by being particularly unpleasant to you, uh, and there's not, there's not many, many of you, then I ought to do that. Ironically enough, uh, one of the things my supervisor attempted to do in his intellectual career is to rehabilitate certainly Benthamite utilitarianism as a theory which can give justice and also does take equality more seriously than Rawls thinks utilitarians take equality. It was interesting. I, I don't think Bentham is quite as egalitarian as Fred Rosen or Paul Kelly would like to make him, but is unrecognizable from some of the caricatures of, of modern utilitarianism that students at UCL Law's faculty still get taught. When they, when they study jurisprudence, uh, which is a bit sad. And next, we'll meet Chris. Hi, Chris. Okay, I'm Chris Riley. I, I work at the Bentham Project at University College London. And same question, how did you end up studying utilitarianism? Um, so it probably began as, as an undergraduate. Uh, I studied uh, politics initially, but I was very interested in the history of political thought. However, the, the classic standard set of thinkers that we were, we were given to study ended with Mill and kind of jumped over over Bentham. Uh, so I was really interested in history political thought as opposed to actual politics. I was kind of depressed by the, the, the prospect of working uh, as an actual politician or for actual politicians. And I kind of identified Bentham as, a, as someone who'd been missed out and a possible avenue for further research in the sense that he was a thinker whose works hadn't fully been edited and published. So I, I became aware of the, the existence of the Bentham Project and the, the collected works of Jeremy Bentham and wanted to contribute in, in some way. So from there, I 
went on to do uh, an, so a master's degree in law at Nottingham, in which I had to study a lot of law, but then I was also able to study historical and philosophical foundations of legal thinking and geared it in a Benthamic direction, wrote my thesis on that. And then I was very fortunate to get funding to do a PhD at the at the Bentham Project. And I've, I've been there ever since. So I, I was studying for my thesis, Bentham and history, which I mentioned earlier, and then very soon after started working part-time as a transcription assistant on the Bentham Project's website known as Transcribe Bentham, where volunteers from around the world are invited to try their hand at transcribing Bentham's original manuscripts. And the goal of that is to have them included or to use it as a resource to draw upon for, for the collected works. Awesome. Thanks for talking through that. So before we put the cart too far ahead of the horse, could we kind of get like a in in a nutshell explanation of sort of what is utilitarianism? What does someone who follows that viewpoint believe? The, the, the most essentially um, that the moral imperative is to maximize happiness or welfare in modern parlance. And certainly for Bentham, does happiness mean happiness is it consists of pleasures? Unhappiness consists of pains. So his entirely hedonistic basis, which is one reason he's had a lot of criticism because utilitarianism is unpleasantly lowbrow. <laughs> For Bentham, all pleasures count the same. The pleasure of derived by the, the, the thief is in and of itself a good because it's, it's a pleasant experience for him. That doesn't mean that thieves should be indulged because of the pains that their actions inflict. Um, Bentham explicitly says that the job of government is, is to protect people from evils and basically the threat presented by their fellows or foreign nations. So for the good, what government does is, is distribute the conditions of, of the pursuit of interest. So rights, protections, but um, are you going to have a happy life? Well, that's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what the good life looks like. We're all subjective beings. We each have our unique experience of the world and what gets us through the night varies. But Bentham sounds very like Mill in terms of discussing things that shouldn't be offences. And, and one of the things he identifies very clearly is consensual homosexual sexual activity, which is a capital offence in England in the 18th century. Um, but Bentham's attitude is that because it delivers pleasure, inflicts no pain whatsoever, it is just irrational for it to be a criminal offence. Never mind uh, a capital criminal offence. He, he never published that opinion um, because he would have got into trouble, but it, it's absolutely his opinion. Part of my mission in life is to, to make Jeremy Bentham into a gay icon. We have no, we have no evidence. Um, no no uh, strong evidence about Bentham's um, sexual preferences. There's an abundance of circumstantial evidence. Um, he uh, had for uh, 60 years a succession of secretaries, um, uh, young men. In later life, allegedly, uh, because he was so frightened of ghosts, uh, whichever was his current secretary, had to share the bed. <laughs> what is certain is that Bentham thought sexual gratification was important to people because it was the most intense pleasure they could get and because it didn't depend upon access to money. <laughs> you didn't need to be rich to have sex. 
So, so how would you rate your progress on on turning Jeremy Bentham into a gay icon so far? Um, um, not great so far. Okay, not great. Well, may, maybe this is the big break you need. We'll see. <laughs> um, so I guess if I could paraphrase my understanding, so it sounds like his his interest in I, I guess the criminalization of homosexuality is really tied more to sort of his analysis that it is it is irrational to to criminalize it. Perhaps that's sort of colored by whatever you know personal preferences he has. Who, who knows? But it's kind of more more about that and less like like it, I, I think another way you can sort of look at at the handling of or the, or the treatment of marginalized groups is that you know, through utilitarian lenses that their, their welfare is impacted. Like, is it, is, is he thinking about it in those terms of like, well, you know, this, this, this pleasure, this welfare is being denied to, to the gay community. So we shouldn't criminalize it. Or is it more sort of like a human rights argument of like, what, what the heck are you doing? This makes no sense. Or is that, is that kind of the same thing said differently? Well, he'd be very irritated by the assertion that the phrases a human rights argument and it makes no sense were equivalent because um, in terms of human rights, human rights, natural rights, no such things. If you, if you want to talk about consequentialist entitlements, rights that there ought to be insofar as they can be, then he'll talk. But if we, we want to frame it in, in, in terms of the human rights discourse, he, he, he just he loses temper. Okay. So I guess a follow up on that. So I'm wondering if 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 either of you could tell me sort of about him as a person and sort of like in his life, are there any things that sort of like led him to to this particular view of the world and what was fair or sort of where where in his life do you, do you think utilitarianism came from? I think the answer to that question is 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 in part it's it, it's a standard enlightenments and bentham is a um lived well into the 19th century but his heart is his heart and brain were were, were trained in enlightenment rationalism <laughs> so the application of reason to social problems can improve social problems why is he utilitarian i think because to him it's just intuitively obvious um, what is important to people? What do people want? People want to be happy. Who wants to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. Does anybody have a greater prima facie entitlement to happiness than anybody else? No. <laughs> um, the consequence of that, uh, everybody, other things being equal, um, has an equal right to happiness. He asks himself and his most famous um, book introduction to the principles of moral legislation what else is there to his mind that there are only three possible moral principles you have the principle of utility on the one hand it's consequentialist it's welfareist so it, it assesses actions and principles in terms of their consequences it believes the most important criterion is is human happiness or human welfare and it is um egalitarian in the sense of counting all pleasures um, equally and counting all individuals equally. One of the important points that both Fred Rosen, Jerry Postma and Paul Kelly make is 
is that it is, it is crucial for Bentham that what matters is our human feelings and each of us lives our life from the inside out. So in the way that Rawls accuses utilitarianism of doing, if you detach the feeling from the individual who's feeling it and you just tot up pleasures and pains, you lose the entire meaning of why that is valuable. That pleasure is valuable because it belongs to a feeling human being. Did Bentham subscribe to that? He absolutely did. Um, other possible moral principles were one is mad. That's the principle of asceticism, which doesn't say maximize pleasure. It says maximize pain. To state it is, is to refute it because it's bonkers um, and, and nobody in their right mind would want to endorse it. But we can deal fairly quickly with asceticism. There's only one other principle and every other person who's not a utilitarian is therefore what Bentham calls um, a sympathist and antipathist, which just means that my moral principles come from my likes and dislikes. In modern day and age, you'd, you'd call it probably some form of intu intuitionism. Everybody else, 18th century moral sense theorists. I have, I have this special moral organ that flashes when something bad happens. Um, um, and Bentham says, well, says who? How do we test this? You, you, you have your moral principles. Joe Bloggs has his moral principles. If they don't match up completely, how do we resolve disagreement? And what you'll find is that when you get into a discussion and you try to resolve disagreements, if you're going to exchange sense, what you're going to do is talk about the consequences of your principles and their application for the experience of feelings sensations by human beings and as soon as you do that basically you're talking my language you, you've stopped being a sympathist and antipathist and you and you've become a utilitarian welcome to the family but but everybody else from plato all the way through to rules <laughs> is is for bentham a sympathist and antipathist because what utility offers is a a testable criterion of delivery. It, it can give you the ability to evaluate a principle or a policy according to its payoff in, in, in terms of who experiences what. Um, uh, and if you don't stick to that route, he says, you simply are talking nonsense. Or the best you're doing is stating a subjective preference. Only utility offers, he says, that external, real, testable criterion for moral evaluation. So is it fair to say then, like from Jeremy Bentham's viewpoint, we're all utilitarian, some of us just know it and some of us don't? Is that fair to say? That's, that's, he, he, almost, he almost says exactly that in those words in, in IPML. He, he, says, he says, some people may not recognize, they may not consider themselves as following this principle, but all of us, especially when we find our view challenged, by a different view, that's where we go. <laughs> we sound like utilitarians and we look for an impartial criterion upon which we can all agree. And he says there's only one sensible um, external criterion of agreement, and that is happiness, that's welfare. And what he means by that is the experience of pleasures and pains 
by real human beings. And as soon as you do that, effectively, we are we are all utilitarians. Chris, any anything to add on the the life and times of of Jeremy Bentham? Um, just a bit further on the on on, on utility as as a principle, and it can be used in almost sort of mathematical sense to to you total up the pleasures and the pains, and then you work out the best course of action. And it can be used in his view to 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 modify um, every policy or institution or practice or custom that doesn't further the ends of utility in the sense that you prefer the best course of action that makes people happier. Uh, and he he uses it in a sense to to attack the English common law system, to propose reforms to the British political system, the political systems of different countries around the world. And he, he uses it for a, a variety of different purposes, just because you can use it to effectively measure outcomes in a, in a far more precise manner than he um, hitherto existed. Makes sense. So I think doubling back to a point I think Michael had had made earlier. So I think in the research I've done for this podcast and the people I've talked to, utilitarianism seems like it's often used almost as like a punching bag or like, well, thank God, at least we're not utilitarians. Um, I'm wondering where where do you think that sort of belief or, or ethos comes from? Part, a, la- a large part of it. It's too common. It's it's too it's too bodily. It's too uh, physical. What are what are the most important pleasures in life for Bentham? Or basically, eating, <laughs> not being not being too cold or too hot, having sex, and knowing that the people you love are enjoying the same things. If you've got that, you've got the necessary elements of a happy life. It, it, it's partly just too sensationalist. People from Mill on, um, all the all the British idealists would feel exactly the same. There must be more than this. But Bentham's response to that will be, "What more do you want? If you want to spend your life contemplating your navel and wondering how many angels can coexist on the head of a pin, and you think that's great, then good. You, you, I'm not. I'm not. I don't. I don't want to stop you, but." Please don't try and make us all into such sort of people, because uh, most of us aren't actually um, interested about that. That that's one of the problems. The other one is utilitarianism. What it absolutely is not is pluralist. So, because Bentham says, if we get into moral pluralism, where okay, I've got I've got liberty, I've got equality, mm, they're both important. And what I've got to do is to try and balance them somehow. The classic late 20th century um, Isaiah Berlin position, liberal idealists like John Gray, human life is somehow tragic. We can't have all good things at the same time simultaneously. We have to make painful choices. We have to trade off things that are, in fact, incommensurable. Life's like that. Bentham says, I'm not buying that because it pushes morality off a cliff. Unless I can get everything into a metric where I can make rational decisions, I can't make rational decisions because when we moral pluralists sit down, again, how are we going to argue? Either we're going to argue about the consequences of preferring X to Y, or we're not going to make any sense. And if we go back to that, then you're back in my ballpark. We are being utilitarian again. So that, that's the second one. 
I mean, there are there are there are pluralistic elements in 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 his way of thinking. You develop a series of principles like Ketteris Paribus, um, an egalitarian distribution will deliver more happiness than an une unequal one because of diminishing marginal utility. I think the one follow-up I would have, so I think the other reason I, I've seen put out to, to treat utilitarianism as a punching bag are these sort of thought experiments, and they, they have different names. In some cases, it's throwing the Christians to the lions. In others, it's, you know, we have the five people who need an organ transplant, and there's a healthy guy in the waiting room, so let's just chop them up. I'm wondering if you have sort of a, a response to sort of those those critiques of utilitarianism. Um, the the um, punishment of the innocent, there are two different um, responses which aren't necessarily completely consistent. The first one says it'll never happen. It can't happen. Why not? Because all good law has to be transparent and understandable. The other response is that are there conceivable circumstances in which it would be the right thing to do to inflict pain on an innocent person in order to save the world? Yes. Yes, of course there are. What do the consequences have to be? There's the man. He knows where the bomb is. He won't tell me. Am I, am I allowed to torture him to get the information? How many people have to be at risk? What should we say? Um, 10,000, 100,000, a million? Uh, what about life on the earth and everywhere else in the known universe will cease unless I get this information? Am I allowed to do it yet? N numbers count in that sense. And, and crudely, at some point, I think that's true. Numbers count. And, and how do I justify that? I, I go back to my utilitarian reasoning and say, okay. Look, look, I know, I know, yes, I'd even say it was wrong at one level, but this was one person, and that's everything. And, and that weighs more than that, and so, yes, I did it. So punish me if you want to, but um, I think I did the right thing, and I think that any rational person in my position ought to have done the same thing. So there are two, there are two very different answers. One says it can't happen. The other one says there are a very limited number of circumstances in which, yes, it can happen, but they're very rare. And if, the, if it happens, then you just have to bite the bullet and, 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 and uh, do the right thing. Awesome. There's a point I wanted to clarify. So I kind of raised the, the thought experiment of there's five people who need an, you know, an organ transplant. Should we just take a kind of unsuspecting healthy stranger from the waiting room and, and transplant and save five lives? I think I, I wanted to confirm sort of the understanding I came away from that with, which was sort of that that is a trade-off people would make. It just might not be five people. Maybe it's 50 or 100, but there's sort of there's some line at which it would be the ethical or moral thing to do to, to do something like that or, or to think about sort of sacrificing in that context. Is that is that sort of a fair understanding? I think it's fair as long as you cut the top off the argument. For Bentham, it, it, would, it would never be right to kidnap Joe Innocent off the street on, on the basis that there was need um, because of the importance of expectation, because of the supportance of security and the role of all the traditional liberal freedoms in delivering security and therefore 
expectations to me. At the other end, is it true that numbers count in, in, in moral calculation? Yes. I think he's, he's very, very confident that the numbers would 99.99% of the time would come out against any casual redistribution of body parts. But could you conceivably devise a thought experiment where such a, such a calculation would come out the right way? And would the costs of not doing it be so great that it would be the rational thing to do? Yes. So, so to that extent, yeah, I think, I think you, you're absolutely on the money. And here we're going to go down a brief rabbit hole and then come back to our conversation. This critique of utilitarianism is summed up well in a commentary by Browning and Veidt. They attribute much of popular criticism of utilitarianism to two misconceptions. Quote, The first confusion is conceptual, a failure to recognize the egalitarianism included within the principle of impartial beneficence that gives equal consideration to everyone's interests. The second confusion is more pragmatic based in the apparent assumption that we could use principles that would avoid sacrifices or trade-offs altogether. So in my words, if that's of any help, utilitarianism counts each of our lived experiences equally. It does not consider the happiness of rich as more important than poor, or the happiness of white people as more important than black or brown people. Sometimes we can see utilitarianism get tied to historic and modern-day instances like the Tuskegee syphilis study, that are better described as overtly racist. But the second point that Browning makes, that people misbelieve that they can avoid sacrifices or trade-offs altogether, seems to, in some cases, be at odds with being American. Speaking as an American, we are raised on the manifest destiny of having your cake and eating it and slamming a 120-ounce Big Gulp while moonwalking your way to winning American Idol. Certain strains of Americanism seem to reject all choices as false choices. As a concise example of this, our federal government is effectively banned from considering cost-effectiveness or health rationing. In comparison, the British National Institute for Health and Care Excellence literally a nice acronym and provides evidence-based guidelines that cover cost-effectiveness in determining what technologies or services are available through the National Health Service. As a partial result of this distinction, American healthcare is radically more expensive than anywhere else in the world. An optimistic view of these facts might be that we can innovate our way out of the problem and avoid those hard choices. But gravity has a way of bringing even the strongest rockets back to Earth in the end. With that, we turn to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Shortages of personal protective equipment and medical technology, like ventilators, become a dominant feature of the initial months of the pandemic. These trade-offs became particularly acute with ventilators, a last-stop measure for patients whom COVID had sent into respiratory failure. Initial estimates were that there were between 60,000 and 160,000 ventilators, and that the need was for several hundred thousand to a million. I got a C in the last math class I took, but I know those ranges don't overlap, which means there are unavoidable, consequential, perhaps consequentialist, or utilitarian choices necessary to bridge that gap. Okay, that's the end of the rabbit hole. Back to the interview. So I think moving on to health, so I'm wondering if, like, is there is there a utilitarian conception of sort of like what is health or what does health mean or how should we sort of think about the health of an, an individual or, or a group of people? Uh, I don't know um, how far it's generalizable. Um, so certainly a benthamic one. It's completely the reverse of, of the modern World Health Organization definition of health, which, which sounds like being at the peak of Maslow's triangle. Um, the health sounds like, you know, completely 
self-actualization for the World Health Organization, Bentham would think that was very foolish because in that case where none of us are healthy. On the other hand, his definition of health is entirely negative. Health is the absence of disease. <laughs> um, if I don't have a diagnosable illness, I'm not. I'm not ill. Um, I am healthy. So I guess kind of the the one of the fundamental questions I'm trying to answer: Why should we care about the health of other people? I think kind of the start of an argument from from Jeremy Bentham might be that it is you know that is kind of a fundamental way to consider welfare. Is that a fair understanding? I guess. Or what would you add to that? I think that's part of it. Um, yes, the, the, what are the, the, he calls them the subordinate ends of legislation, effectively the fundamental human interests. So they are purity, subsistence, abundance, and equality. And uh, subsistence, health is, in, is rolled up into subsistence because subsistence is about food and shelter. And if I've got food and shelter, if I'm warm and I'm fed, then my chances of being healthier are, are much, much better. But in addition to that, I have an interest in your health in so far as diseases are, are, can be um, contagious or infectious. And if I want to avoid infectious disease myself, it's in my interest that you should avoid it too. Looking the other way is not a, it's not a prudent strategy for self-interested people. So he takes standard 18th century, uh, standard 18th century view on the necessity of quarantine. So other people's health does matter to me. There are there are odd hints, but that's all they are. That he might think something like the spirit level, the recent best-selling book that argued that equality benefited everybody, not just the poor, but but uh, the rich as well were healthier, happier in countries like Sweden than they were in, in the United States or Great Britain. There are one or two lines in Bentham where he sounds a bit like that, but they're not developed, even though equality is uh, one of the subordinate ends of legislation. So I'm wondering if you could maybe clarify that. So I think part of my understanding of, of utilitarianism is that it almost definitionally does not consider equality or, or distribution, that it is kind of focused on sort of, we, we just want to maximize happiness and we don't really care who who has it. And, and I don't know how much of that is is legitimate versus a caricature, but it's, I, I wanted to ask if you could clarify sort of what, what, is, what does equality mean in this context? Um, for Bentham, I think it means two different things. Usually when, when he talks about equality, he means economic equality. He, he means having the same amount of stuff. As a political goal, he thinks that's a stupid goal. If you manage to achieve distribution equality on Tuesday, it'll have been upset by Wednesday because somebody have made a good deal, somebody have made a bad deal. And, and, and so we are continually having to start again and, and, and share it all that once more. That said, with a few fairly acceptable premises, if you say that people are broadly equal in their capacity to derive pleasure from resources, they don't have to be exactly equal, uh, broadly equal will more than do. And then you say, therefore, an equal distribution of those resources will generate the most happiness simply because of diminishing marginal utility. So that is the way he sets up the argument is, is why equality is a subordinate end of legislation. 
I think there's a there's a second strand, and I think Jerry Postumer is is absolutely right here, and and Paul Kelly and and Fred Rosen for that matter, that Bentham cares about human welfare, and the important thing about human lives is they're all lived from the inside out. So Postumer calls it the individualist conception of happiness. What matters are the quality of of people's lives. The good news is we don't actually need that much stuff to have a decent life. We need to be secure in our subsistence. We need to know that the people we love are secure and will be secure in their subsistence. And then we're running out of things to add for having a for having an adequately decent life. And given that he also assumes that the vast majority of the human race will be close to subsistence level, most of us will remain one paycheck away from the poorhouse. He, he says that if you have a, a society given broadly equal talents and you get rid of the feudal or, or caste barriers to opportunity, then incomes will tend to become more equal because basically uh, spoiled rich kids don't work hard, the sons of poverty do. That, to my mind, looking back 200 years, seems to be remarkably optimistic and, and to fly in the face of, of where we've got to. But that's what he argues, partly to comfort himself. And uh, the second thing he says, no, no, you're making the wrong comparison. Uh, and, and in this, he, he follows Smith. He follows John Locke, who makes the original comparison between the day labourer in England, and this is in the in the end of the 17th century, and the chief of the American tribe. And Locke says the day labourer is better off, and Bentham just echoes that argument. You're better off because it might be a fairly tiny and uh, dirty and smelly cottage, but your legal powers over it are much better than those of uh, the Indian chief. Because who knows when somebody who's bigger and stronger than him is going to hop over the hill, hit him on the head and, and take away all his stuff. So the, the rule of law can accommodate a ridiculously huge amount of inequality without becoming insupportable. If we do end up in the, uh, uh, a, a classic Marxist position where, oh, look, there's all of us and that tiny group over there have got everything. Then you're in, then the society is in trouble, and it will it, it, there will be violence and there will be disorder. But we'll all suffer from the disorder because eventually, when we've finished chopping people's heads off, um, we'll have to again re-establish a political organisation, and there will be inequality. Fred Rosen and Jerry Poston both want to argue that he's committed, in terms of ideal theory, to equal distribution. It's just that. Um, we don't live in ideal theory, so so everything else is never equal, and security always and everywhere trumps equality for Bentham, sadly, I think. Yeah, so so to maybe put a finer point on this, um, I, I guess in my reading and research, there are kind of like two two levels to thinking about justice or or, or fairness in in health. There is justice in in healthcare which is kind of more about access to resources, what is available to me. And then there's thinking about justice and health, which is sort of my lived experience, the outcome, how healthy I am as a person. 
would Jeremy Bentham, how would he see those? Would he see them as both legitimate? How would, would he think about one versus the other? Or how, how would he sort of consider those layers? In terms of are they both relevant, I think he'd want to know about both because clearly not unrelated. Part of my lived health experience depends upon what access I've had to the health resources. One of the great ironies of Bentham's writings on the poor laws, which is that he thinks he can afford, because he's going to derive profit from the labor of children, he can afford to supply free or very cheap health services to what he calls the independent poor, cross-subsidized by the labor of the dependent poor who, who live in his workhouses. So in terms of the access to healthcare, the Benthamic poor plan would have been great for the independent poor um, because they'd have, they would have had access to a skilled medical practice that they didn't have unless they were a very charitable doctor living in the parish. The ability to afford it for the national charity company to afford it depends upon the systematic exploitation of child labor. So, because without that, we can't afford it as a nation. So in terms of the distribution of, of health resources, who's going to get them? Basically those who can pay for them. Does Bentham think that's all right? Well, there are arms hospitals, there are free hospitals, but does he think Britain can afford to supply anything like the NHS? No, absolutely not. But does he have any proposals to equalize access to healthcare? No, only ironically through the back door in terms of his poor plan. In terms of uh, lived experience and outcomes, is that important? Yes, he couldn't even begin to guess about those figures. What he would insist is get me those figures. Tell me... Um, then, then we can look at them and we can say, oh, look, people in Glasgow live 10 years less long than, than people in the southeast of England. Why do we think that is? <laughs> and then you'll have a basis for investigation. Um, and then what do you do about it? Well, it depends upon the costs and the benefit. If you could change that situation at reasonable cost, then he'd want to change it because that's, that's again, pain that could be avoided with a more rational distribution of resources, I think. But the evidence there is thin. It, it's not a subject to which he addresses himself significantly. Yeah. And then I think maybe this is a reflection of the forced organ transplant question. But I think in speaking to sort of the American experience, there are some groups that are kind of persistently left out of that calculus. So like, I think an example that they could get put forward is the, you know, the disabled community. So, you know, it's a small community, maybe it, it costs a lot to, you know, put curb ramps or whatever else they need, whatever accommodations they need. Is that like in, in the utilitarian calculus, is that just the, the cost of doing business or sort of how, how would Jeremy Bentham think about, you know, groups that are persistently mm -hmm. left out of, you know, left out of that? Uh, nobody's read it, but I have written about this. Uh, the, the, um, again, back to his poorhouses, and he talks about appropriate establishments for the blind, um, the deaf, the physically disabled, because he says, oh, what are the problems for these people? Although his view of disability is absolutely a deficit model of disability, it is an impairment. He also argues that their remaining abilities, if given the right support, can be as profitable 
to them or indeed to the national charity company as as anybody else's so there are hints in bentham of a social model of disability it, it's actually the world that's getting in my way of realizing the talents i do have and again because of the cross subsidization from the systematic exploitation of child labor he thinks the national charity company can afford to provide the sort of adapted machinery specialized instruction that uh, these minorities may need and they can earn uh, a, a lot of money uh, some of them it, it is an issue which when he thinks about it there are partly very very progressive elements to his argument the other progressive element of his argument is about sex there are elements of the social model in bentham to to actually realize the social model to the extent that western societies are increasingly becoming concerned to adapt it to change the world to make access easier he would be terrified by the cost i think the national charity company can do it because it's turning a profit then you go back to is is utility ultimately a matter of experienced welfare or is it a matter of welfare derivable from a certain set of resources and he would i think be inclined to go along with dawkins insistence that ultimately justice is about resources because if you're an egalitarian and you start getting committed to equalize welfare you very quickly get a reductio ad absurdum you think of the the most disabled person you can conceivably imagine with the minimal capacity to derive enjoyment and the largest capacity to feel pain and you consider investing basically the entire gdp of the world in order to try and make this person's life marginally better thereby bringing everybody else down towards somewhere near his level and bentham would think that was silly i think so there are limits to the degree of distribution i can claim on the basis of equality which is i mean that's true across bentham's thought there are there are in terms of economic equality there are very strict limits on those uh, to do with the rights of property so is is he ultimately at a deep level in that sense in terms of justice a welfareist arguably not it's what do we need we need to keep producing stuff so there are big resources elements in in there for bentham i think well, thanks for talking through that with us, Chris and Michael. And let's see what the oversimplicator prints out about a utilitarian definition of health justice. And it just says cost effectiveness, not even a complete sentence, just cost effectiveness. I can presume this is to keep from spending additional funds on ink and paper. So let's take a minute to talk about this. Utilitarianism implies that health justice is determined by maximizing cost effectiveness. In health economics, this is often measured in terms of cost per quality adjusted life year, or quali, or a cost per disability adjusted life year, or dolly. In short, through a combination of research, assumptions, and math, you can estimate how efficient any intervention to improve health will be. While methodologically dense, a quali or dolly is a number used to describe how healthy or unhealthy someone is over the course of a year, from a scale of from zero to one, with one representing a year lived in perfect health. Going back to our discussion with Yukiko, 
There are a lot, a lot, a lot of assumptions and value judgments that go into what's a 1 or a 0.9, so it's not a mathematical fact. So if an intervention costs $100 and it takes someone from a quality of 0.5 to 0.1, the cost per quality is $200. Utilitarianism tells us that we should invest in interventions that only allow us to buy qualities more cheaply. A cost per quality figure of $100,000 is generally used as a benchmark in the United States. So an intervention that is less than that is generally a good buy, while interventions above that level are not. Continuing our consideration of the COVID-19 pandemic, an early analysis of the cost-effectiveness of a $1 trillion, that's trillion with a T, economic stimulus package proposed in March 2020 found that the cost per quality of that package would range from $75,000 to $650,000. To put that in perspective, the Gates Foundation estimated that eradication of malaria would cost up to $120 billion, roughly 7% of that stimulus amount. So if we think back to our robust practical conception of health equity, I think the piece of utilitarianism we would take is its conception of equality, which we spoke to earlier. Utilitarianism sees us as all having equal moral worth. This sets a strong floor when considering the issue of health equity. It is hard to imagine a reasonable argument against this articulation of moral worth. To end this episode, I'm going to introduce another bit, which I'm calling Philosophy's a Joke, featuring Google Bard. The premise is that I ask Google Bard, the large language model AI, to make up a joke about the subject of the episode. To me, these are always funny because the joke is either really good or the joke is really bad, and then Google Bard has to explain why it's funny. And as I always say, the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. So here is Google Bard's joke about utilitarianism. Why did the utilitarian chicken cross the road? To get to the other hedons. This joke is a pun on the words, hedons, and hens. It also suggests that utilitarians are always looking for ways to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, even for chickens. So that's it. Join the conversation on Twitter at Practice Inequity. That's Practice In without the G, because we like to keep it casual. And subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question, comment, or correction for me, email practicinghealthequity at gmail.com. Last but not least, tell all your public health nerd friends to tune in and subscribe. Take care. Next week, we will explore effective altruism, a philosophy that has many of its roots in utilitarianism. And here's a brief preview. What kind of people sort of get on board for this? What, what do they look like as a group? Not like physically, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we only pick the really good looking ones. As you can tell, yeah. It's a good thing this is an audio medium.